It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to the Coffee Clash. The Coffee Clash and Special Needs Talk Radio Network feature outstanding programming for the special needs community. Our team of hosts provide educational interviews. Our shows are not designed to provide listeners with specific or personal medical, legal, or professional service or advice. Parents of children with health issues should always consult their health care provider for medical advice, medications, or treatments. Any show discussing rights and law for special needs children and special education are presented as general information and not legal advice. Special Needs Coffee Clash Limited does not promote any host or guest individual practice, programs, treatments, or products. We thank you for joining us and are proud to provide excellence in broadcasting for the special needs community. And now, on to the interview. Good evening. Again, this is Marianne Russo. Thank you for joining me tonight on the Coffee Clutch. We have an unbelievable show for you tonight, and as I've been promoting it very heavily, it's a very important um, interview. But I first want to start off by thanking the sponsors for tonight's show, um, You Discovering, which is um, one of our new advertisers, and you know they really can help you and your child um, who's just you know been diagnosed with autism. They have an online training course, Discovering Behavioral Intervention is the Answer, and Real Parents take you through applied behavior analysis in 10 step-by-step modules. You can learn all about it at udiscovering.org. And, of course, Mayor Johnson, they are the special education super source, and uh, we're very proud to have them as our sponsor. They are the makers of BoardMaker, and they recently have put out an e-catalog, which features hundreds of great products, um, including some that are very significantly reduced right now. So visit them at mayorjohnson.com to learn more. As I said, this is a really important interview, and um, the title of the show tonight is Saving Normal, um, the Disease Called Childhood. And I am honored to have back on Dr. Um, Alan Francis. He was on twice before. um, And really, I really encourage you to go back and listen to those interviews. Um, We went into very specific details about autism and bipolar disorder and ADHD. And tonight, we're going to be talking um, really about the DSM-5 that's coming out very soon and uh, things the parents need to know. You know, through the years, the the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual has gained, you know, it's become so significant um, as far as, um, its effect on lives for children and adults. And, um, you know, it, it's, it really sets the boundaries between what's normal and what's mental illness. And, um, you know, it, it can determine who's sick, who's not sick, what type of treatment you get, what type of insurance you get. It affects your child's school accommodations. And uh, really, Dr. Alan Francis was the chairperson of the DSM-4. Um, he worked on the DSM-3. And, um, you know, right now... Um, you know he's he's really become i i guess he's become our our voice for what we need to know about the upcoming DSM and um, the critical role that it's going to play in really deciding what's normal um dr francis believes that every individual experiences psychiatric symptoms from time to time but the DSM 5 well you know could make everyday aches and pains disappointments and really life into a, a diagnosis. So I am thrilled to have him back. We are going to be discussing some really important issues. We're going to be discussing how the DSM-5 and its hyperinflation of diagnoses, um, you know, such as, you know, grief and loss would be diagnosed as depression. How, a, you know, a child that has a lot of temper tantrums could get the new diagnosis of disruptive dysregulation mood disorder. Um, you know, ADHD, we're going to be discussing some specific disorders. We're also going to be talking about the role that the drug companies are playing in um, diagnoses. One of the most important things I personally feel we're going to be discussing is the dangers of pediatricians or primary doctors prescribing psychotropic medications. And um, not only are we going to discuss the problems, but he's going to give us his 
thoughts on the fix for the problems in the system. So it's an honor to welcome back Dr. Alan Francis. How are you? Yeah, that was a pleasure to listen to. You do it a lot better than I do. <laughs> I've been doing it a long time. <laughs> well, it, it's great to have you back. And, um, you know, as I was thinking about what we were going to talk about and I was you know, drawing up my outline, you know, I was thinking you've spent so many years and dedicated such a significant part of your life working on the DSM-3 um, and 4. And, you know, you're now really an outspoken critic is what – really the title you've been given, um, you know, of the DSM-5. And, you know, if I'm not incorrect, you know, it's it's. I, I don't really see you so much as a critic as you just, you, you're seeing a trend that I'm also seeing. So for you, what's changed from the time that you were doing the DSM-4 to what's coming out in the DSM-5? Well, it all started four years ago. I had a cocktail party at the American Psychiatric Association annual meeting, and there were lots of people in the room who were working on DSM-5. At that point, I had dropped out of the psychiatry and was pretty much retired. My wife had been sick, and I had been caring for her. The, the cocktail party scared me. Um, people were suggesting all kinds of things for DSM-5 that I knew would have terrible unintended consequences. They were doing it with the purest of hearts, but with a lack of awareness of all the harms that would be done. And I realized that I had lots of the diagnoses. So uh, one guy was suggesting mild neurocognitive disorder. I can't re remember where I parked my car. I'd qualify for that. Um, someone else was talking about how we would diagnose um, major depressive disorder after two weeks of grief. My wife had died about a year before, and I had been terribly upset by that. Um, under the new rules, I would have had major depressive disorder. Lots of people think I have attention deficit disorder um, and too, too hyperactive, and my grandchildren would have had tempered dysregulation disorder, and I'm definitely a good candidate for binge eating disorder. So it seemed to me that they were um, embarked on an attempt to expand the boundaries of psychiatry in a way that would take normal behaviors and make them into mental disorders. They were doing this because they were worried about missed patients and they were hoping to anticipate problems and prevent them. But the, the end result would be, I'd learned this from DSM, the work on DSM-3 and DSM-4, the end result would be that lots of normal people would be misidentified and lots of normal kids have been misidentified as having a mental disorder. And what happens all too frequently these days is that um, the drug company advertising and the marketing to doctors leads to the idea that if you have a mental disorder, that means there's a chemical imbalance and you have to take a pill. And what we've done is spend fortunes on pills. We shouldn't be spending $9 billion on pills for attention deficit disorder. We should be spending more money on schools. That the whole thing was out of whack. And so I felt that I was in a position of understanding this more than most because I, it was on my watch that a lot of these disorders had ballooned and that the people working on DSM-5 just didn't understand the consequences, the unintended consequences of what they were doing, and that's why I had to speak out. Right. And, um, you know, a lot of people are listening. You know, you're not the only one. Um, you know, and I know a lot of um, the very big um, organizations, um, you know, have their concerns. Um, you know, about what you just said, you know, I, I just briefly I want to go through this, and then we're going to go into um, really more how it pertains to childhood. But I can't agree with you more. I lost a son in a car accident a few years ago, and I was devastated. Does that mean that I warranted a diagnosis of depression? You know, I don't think so. Even looking back, you know, I don't think so. I think that was normal, um, you know, and you come out of it. And, um, you know, as you said, you know, and it, it can go both ways. You know, um, we've discussed my daughter has juvenile fibromyalgia. She had horrific pain for four years. Um, and, you know, when doctors can't find answers in a blood test or an MRI, um, you know, they seem to say, well, it must be a mental illness. This must be all in her head. And, you know, God, I'm so grateful that I didn't listen. Um, you know, and we found treatment. So it can, you know, the, the rule is first do no harm. So you really do have to be very, very careful, especially because of the medications involved. You know, the, um, one of the suggestions that, that just completely defies common sense in DSM-5 is that if you have a physical symptom and you worry about it more than your doctor should, thinks you should worry about it, that alone would be somatic symptom disorder. And in the study they themselves did, they found that, that get this, one out of every four people with chronic pain and one out of every six people with cancer would qualify for a mental disorder. 
if you have cancer and you get a headache and your doctor thinks that you're worried that that's a recurrence, more than you should be worried about it, you could get a diagnosis of somatic symptom disorder. And, and you know this much better because you've suffered through it yourself. Mm-hmm. Being told that something is all in your head is the worst possible news that, that someone could get. Not only is it insulting and dismissive, but the fear is that it, doctors often take seriously the concern that they'll miss the medical illness, that there'll be an inadequate medical workup. And the two suggestions that have really stirred the most outrage amongst the people who DSM-5 is trying to help are the grief suggestion and and the suggestion that medical illness should be so easily dismissed and mislabeled as psychiatric disorder. Right. You know, and I think that one of the, the biggest dangers, especially for parents if their child has something like this, is that, you know, you really need to understand that your child now has lost trust in the 20 or 30 doctors that you've dragged them to to try to find out what's wrong with them. Um, And if a parent is intimidated or misled to dismiss what this child is saying, this child's going to lose their trust in the parent. So, you know, this can become a very big problem. Um, But, you know, I want to talk about... Let me say one thing to that. I think that the only solution, given, you know, all the confusion and, and, and the concern about overdiagnosis, the only solution for a parent or for a patient is to be well-informed, to know a lot yourself, to be completely unshy about asking questions. You should always have a bunch of questions for the doctors to expect reasonable answers that make sense to you and that fit you know, with the pattern that you yourself see. And when the answers aren't good, to always get a second opinion. To never, ever accept a diagnosis or pill after a few minutes with a doctor. The diagnosis is something that done well can be a wonderful thing for the rest of your life. Done poorly can cause terrible harms and and stigma and and unnecessary treatment. You wouldn't buy a house or or, uh, choose a wife or a husband based on a a few-minute evaluation. Diagnoses are at that level of importance. and The diagnosis should be something that's carefully considered, done over time, not rushed into, and that no one should ever accept quick diagnoses and quick treatments, particularly from primary care doctors who aren't you know, well-trained in this and also have very few minutes to spend with you. Well, that's what I wanted to go into because your book, um, which I've been showing the picture of um, all week, is just fabulous. Um, the title is Saving Normal, Saving Normal, An Insider's Revolt Against Out-of-Control Psychiatric Diagnosis, DSM-5, Big Pharma, and the Medicalization of Ordinary Life. And in this book, you write about um, you write about step diagnosis, and I just loved it because I hear this all the time. I, there's two things that I would really like you to address for the parents. Um, first of all, you know, there's the kids that, first of all, I just want to say that we're not talking about children with severe mental illness here. I mean, that is not really what I'm talking about in this interview. I'm talking about those kids in the gray area that, you know, normal differences um, that don't, you know, that it's not conformity. They're not like everyone else. Um, But, you know, what I wanted to talk about is that so many parents go to their pediatrician. And the pediatrician may say, well, this is ADHD, they can't focus, they can't do this, and they prescribe. Or they go see a psychiatrist and they get a 15-minute um, consult, 20-minute consult, and they're given a diagnosis. And for a child that's still growing, um, you know, I just think there seem, needs to be so much more time. So what are your stepped diagnoses for a parent so that they know what they should do and should expect? Well, here, here's the amazing thing. There was a study that was done in Canada on 12, at least 10,000 kids, and they found that the best predictor of having ADHD, particularly in boys, was whether you were born in December or born in January. How could that possibly be? Are you kidding? Really? No. It was the best. A boy born in January had almost twice the rate of ADD is a boy born in December. Did they and think that, that was because, viral or something? That, that no, but the school, the school start date. January 1st divided the kids into an older co- cohort and a younger cohort. So the youngest kids in the class, the ones born in January, were mm. twice as likely to have ADD as the kids born in December. What does this mean? It's crazy. It means that we are diagnosing the youngest kid in the class as having a mental disorder because he's more active and less mature than the oldest boy in the class. We're taking 
being young and being a boy is a mental illness. ADD is out of control. The diagnosis has increased by um, at least three times in the last 20 years. Recently, the CDC reported that that's the Center for Disease Control, that 20% of teenage boys, get this, 20% of teenage boys have a diagnosis of ADHD and that 10% of teenage boys are getting medicine for it. We're taking normal developmental differences and turning them into mental disorder and treating them with pills. And that means $9 billion to the drug companies I would love to be spending that money on smaller class sizes and more physical education. Our kids don't get enough physical education. And in school. differentiated education, absolutely. They need to be able to run around in the playground, and then they'll be more able to focus in the class. And instead of treating the problems in the schools, we're treating the problems in the individual kids that are really made up. There are some kids who have clear-cut ADD with early onset that's devastating that, that requires medication. But for most kids, uh, letting them, you know, just run around some, letting them grow out of it is a much better way. And this, the idea of step diagnosis is that you don't make the diagnosis in the first visit when you barely know the kid. There's nothing harder to diagnose than a child. A child has a very short track record. It's hard to get a clear picture of, of what's going to happen in the future. They change a lot from visit to visit. Um, temporary stressors may result in behaviors that aren't going to be typical of the future. Generally, the child is seen by the clinician on the worst day of his life or one of the worst days of his life. It's better that a diagnosis come at the end of a process of evaluation that, that's, that's really thorough rather than at the beginning. And the only reason that doesn't happen is because insurance companies require a diagnosis for the doctor to be paid. Our whole system is skewed to premature diagnosis and premature treatment after very brief visits with often, you know, primary care doctors who don't have much experience in psychiatry, and everyone is way over-influenced by the drug companies. It is only in America and New Zealand and the entire world that drug companies are allowed to advertise to the public. So all the ads you see about the problems your kids have and how these are mental disorders and that mental disorders are chemical imbalances and that chemical imbalances require a chemical treatment with a pill and ask your doctor None of that would happen anywhere else in the world. They're bombarding people with propaganda that's misleading and really geared just to making money for shareholders. Doctors are equally bombarded with the idea that psychiatric diagnosis is easy to do, that the disorders are being way underdiagnosed, that you, no, no problem, you see the patient for 10 minutes, you make the diagnosis, you give the pill, and that the parent will be happy and you'll just get them out of your office quicker. It's very important never to accept an off-the-hip, quick-draw quick kind of diagnosis. It's an important moment in your child's life. If it's you, it's an important moment in your life. It should always be done carefully, and it's much better if it's not done on the first visit because most people get better between the first and the second visit. And by the third or fourth or fifth week, most people no longer need a diagnosis, need a pill. We're not talking about, as you mentioned, people who have severe psychiatric problems. Right. But for the average worried well, for the average kid who's having a temporary blip, it's going to get better. The uh, time, resilience, uh, hope, um, sort of switching some of the environmental factors, reducing stress, all these are remarkably effective. Uh, counseling should be in the uh, lineup before pills. Absolutely. And the, yeah. the idea of a diagnosis, and which often lasts a lifetime, it's very easy to give a diagnosis. It's very hard to get rid of. It can haunt for a lifetime. So the idea that we should be giving kids diagnoses in the, in the first visit after 10 or 15 minutes and start on a pill is just really, I, I think, bad practice. And it's important that parents know a lot themselves ask lots of questions, get lots of opinions, and don't jump in with diagnosis and medication until it's really proven to be necessary. 
Right, and you know, as you as you were talking about, um, you know, therapy. I mean, you know, parents also have to educate themselves on different therapies that work for different things. I mean, for a child that may have um, seemed to be having some obsessions or some type of anxiety, so, you know, sometimes talk therapy isn't the best route. Maybe they need a cognitive behavioral therapy, um, you know, which should always be tried before um, medications. And as you were saying, doctors need to put down a diagnosis on that little receipt that you get um, to get paid. But also, schools require a diagnosis to give your child accommodations. So it becomes a necessity, to, well, what they may think is a necessity to get a diagnosis um, and, and it, just to get the treatment that they need or the services that they need. It's a very, you know, it's a system that's really headed down the wrong road. Yeah, I think that one of the big problems is that the, um, the DSM has become more important in situations where it's beyond its competence, like school decisions, uh, more important for its own good, more important for the kids' good, more important than um, what is good for the schools. These are clinical diagnoses that were developed by clinicians, defined by clinicians who have no knowledge of how they should be used in schools or, or could be used in schools. We shouldn't be making decisions about school services for our kids based on a clinical diagnosis that wasn't developed with that in mind. The decisions about school services should be educational decisions made by educators based on educational needs. And the close coupling of the diagnostic system with the um, school service results in, in excessive diagnosis and stigmatization of kids and isn't the best way of assigning who needs what service. It should be done by educators, not by um, a, a diagnostic system that didn't have that as its major purpose and doesn't really have that within its expertise. Absolutely. You know, and I want to play the devil's advocate a little bit before we go into um, the article and some more specifics. But, you know, for parents, you know, it's almost like a double-edged sword because if you think that you try, especially we're talking teens, but, you know, younger children um, commit suicide and have, you know, um, self-harm as well. But for a parent, it's like a double-edged sword because you could see your child, they're depressed, they may be becoming withdrawn. And, um, you know, so you bring them to someone and, you know, your gut is telling you maybe I should wait, maybe, you know, I'm not comfortable with this medication. But, you know, you have that fear that, you know, God forbid you don't do something, what if? It's very stressful for parents. So, you know, how can a parent um, sort of get a handle on their anxiety about it and make decisions? You know, I've been a parent, too. I know how hard it is to, to um, deal with the, the, the suffering of a kid and for the, the behavioral problems of a kid and not know what's definitely right. It's very hard to deal with uncertainty. And the tendency to avoid uncertainty is to come to premature closure and to feel that if we have a name for it, that provides an explanation and now I can go forward with, with a degree of comfort. The trouble is that false certainty is much worse than uncertainty. And okay. that in situations where things are unclear, it's better to be um, humble in the face of uncertainty and to closely follow what's happening and watch it and, and see you know, what seems to be best as it evolves rather than jump in prematurely. Now, if a kid has an obvious severe problem and isn't functioning, if a kid has severe depression, severe anxieties, isn't going to school, isn't you know growing up in the way that, that that's necessary for sort of healthy development, by all means, I'm a great endorser of getting help for it. And I'm worried now that people, because DSM-5 has such a bad reputation, that people will go overboard in the other direction and lose faith in psychiatry altogether and say it's all nonsense. Psychiatry is remarkably effective when it's done cautiously and well and when there's a real attention to diagnosis and, and a kind of uh, careful step treatment planning. What I'm afraid of in this country is that a lot of diagnosis is done quick. It's done by people who aren't psychiatrists and aren't really expert in it. And jumping the gun trying to get certainty before it's possible, well, in the long run, trying to be helpful in the long run can be hurtful. So I think parents need to be as informed as they possibly can be. They need to ask lots of questions. They need to be patient in getting the answers. By all means, if you're scared that your kid is in real trouble, get that help urgently. On the other hand, in all of the shades of great cases, 
I would let time take its course from and see what happens without interventions that may be more harmful than helpful. Exactly. And, you know, I agree with you 100%. A, a good psychiatrist, uh, I mean, it, it, it just, it's just life-saving. It makes such a difference when they listen, when they take the time. You know, it's, like you said, you know, there, there are gray areas, and then there are those, you know, those kids that are clearly suffering. And, you know, my understanding is that the kids that are the more severely um have more severe mental illness are the ones that get the least treatment. Well, this has been, to me, a tragedy of of our country, that we're spending fortunes treating people who may not need it, helping shareholders of drug companies and their executives. At the same time, there's this horrible neglect of people who desperately do need it. The, um, The public service system has been severely cut in the last several years, and it was never really robust. And we now have, this is the most amazing and and disheartening statistic. We've closed a a million psychiatric beds in the United States in the last 40 years. And guess what? We've added a million psychiatric patients in prison. We've turned being a mental patient into almost a criminal activity. And we've added one million psychiatric patients who now live in prison who've committed nuisance crimes who could have been handled perfectly well in the community if there had been community services and adequate housing. In most countries in the world, there are many more resources devoted to the people who really need it and fewer resources devoted to people who don't. We have everything topsy-turvy. We're way over-treating people who would do better on their own and we're terribly neglecting people who need help. That's particularly true with adults, but it's also quite true for kids. President Obama made this amazing comment. It's easier now for a mental patient to buy a gun than to get an outpatient appointment. And so I think we we have our priorities screwed up. We need to be treating the people who really need it. Right, and, you know, my heart aches for... um, these families um, who have children with severe mental illness, that they really can't maintain them at home. They can't stabilize them. Um, And their options are horrific. They're really, I mean, the the state of our mental health system for children in particular is just horrendous. Um, You know, parents don't have options. But I want to read, I want to move on to... Sometimes it can take months to get an appointment. Yeah, I know. It should be that if someone really needs help, that they can get that help in a timely fashion, and we're just not doing a very good job of that. And a month is quick here in New York. Um, I want to talk about a disease called um, childhood that you wrote this piece for the New York Post. And I want to just read the the beginning of it where it says, The Post reported that more than 145,000 city children struggle with mental illness or emotional problems. That estimate, courtesy of the New York um, Health Department, equals an amazing one in five kids. Now, in here you write, and I was going to... um, highlight a few things that you had in here previously, but we discussed that about diagnosis. But one thing, that word that you use a lot, um, and one of the things you said is that there's been a massive mislabeling of psychiatric diagnosis among children because of a recent medical, because of recent medical fads. Now, when you say fads, I mean, I know like when I first see the word fads, you know, it's sort of like, I don't know how to interpret that because do you feel like it's vogue to have this or is it a fad that it's just easier to get that diagnosis? Well, maybe the best way is to do some concrete examples. When we were working on DSM-4 late 80s, early 90s, the rate of ADD in the community was something like 3 to 5%. DSM-4 was published in 1994, and just three years later, two things happened that completely changed the ADD situation. The first was that drug companies came on the market with expensive new pills for ADD. Before this, the ADD pills were pennies. They were around for 40 years. They were off patent. They were cheap. There was no incentive and very few resources for drug companies to be pushing them. But suddenly they had new new pills that were you know dollars, not pennies a pill. So that gave them a lot of incentive to push ADD and a lot of money to do it because the revenue coming in could support a massive advertising campaign. 
at that very same time, this is 1997, the drug companies got the right to advertise directly to consumers, which I mentioned before, mm -hmm. other countries don't give them. So what did they do? They started doing ADD ads everywhere, on TV, on the Internet, magazines. They started financing um, thought leaders in the field to be giving talks everywhere. They went to doctor's offices and they explained that ADD was being underdiagnosed. Um, they convinced teachers that this would be an easy way of dealing with problems in the classroom. So the rates of ADD have tripled in these last 20 years. That doesn't mean that the kids have more ADD. There's not like more ADD in the world all of a sudden in 1997. What happened in 1997 was a massive marketing campaign, disease-mongering ADD. And the result of that is that lots of kids who don't really have ADD are misdiagnosed, lots of adults. The um, medication treatment is seen as the only treatment when the literature does not, you know, medication helps in the short run. It's not clear it helps in the long run for most kids. Kids who need it, certainly, but it's being given to kids who don't. And then we come upon this amazing statistic. Does it make any sense in the world that 20% of our teenage boys would get this diagnosis? Uh, that's definitely medicalizing normal. Does it make any sense in the world that 10% of our teenage boys are going to be on a stimulant medication? And what kind of example is that for them? What's their future going to be like if as teenagers we're giving them stimulant medication for very, very questionable indications? So labels can change quickly. And if there's money involved, labels can change in a most dramatic possible way. That's what I mean by a fad or a fashion. It's not that kids are suddenly different than kids have always been. But if we put them in very big classes, if we have insufficient structure in the schools, if there isn't a phys ed period for them to blow off steam, the easy way out is to be diagnosing ADD and the drug companies are pervasively convincing the doctors, the parents, the teachers that this is the way to go because it profits them. That's what leads to a fad. Yeah. And we've had, we've had two others with kids. You know, autism is a problem in this regard for different reasons, and also childhood bipolar disorder. Both of these were fads of the last 20 years. Well, those are my next two upcoming questions, actually. Um, stimulants. Um, you know, I know that sort of the thinking now is that stimulants are a benign choice. Um, and, you know, for some kids it really isn't. I mean, it's so important to know a family history. Um, you know, if there's bipolar in the family, if there are other types of problems in the family. Um, you know, and, and my concern is that I, I, in that case with the ADD, I do, I do agree with you that, you know, it just seems that Adderall or, you know, uh, whatever, you know, is is just given out like candy. Um, you know, so what what is a parent to do if they're quickly handed a, a um you know, a stimulant and what effects can stimulants have? Well it's amazing. So you give a stimulant to a child that actually has bipolar. Yeah, it's a really amazing thing that um there's a Times article about two months ago that that some some doctors, particularly pediatricians, were giving kids stimulants even though they didn't think they had A D D just so that they would cope better with classrooms that were chaotic. They were giving it to them as a kind of performance enhancement boost. Especially college kids. And actually college kids, 30% of college kids take illegal stimulants that they buy mm -hmm. on the secondary market. That So much ADD diagnosis is being done and so many pills for it are being prescribed that there's a very lively secondary market in college campuses and in high school campuses. So 30% of college kids buy ADD stuff for um, for performance enhancement before tests, and 10% of high school kids do this. And again, setting a terrible example, creating an illegal drug market from prescription drugs. And the effects on kids are unknown. It's like we're doing this major... A public experiment without informed consent, without um, study guidelines, uh, providing many, many millions of kids with uh, medications and not knowing at all what the long-term effects are. I don't think we should be doing research on our kids, that we should know a lot more about the impact of the diagnosis and the medications before we, we almost put them in the water supply. It's being done way too loosely. In the short term, the stimulants cognitively do help kids, even if they don't have ADD, as they do right. adults. But the long-term effects 
are not encouraging. The early studies that found profound effects from the medication, um, as they were extended for longer periods of time, those effects washed out. And we don't know what the long-term harmful effects are. And as you point out, if someone's going to go on to have a diagnosis of bipolar disorder, you don't want them on stimulants. You may be right. making their bipolar disorder that much worse, increasing rapid cycling, making manic episodes more likely. And when we're giving 10% of high school kids stimulants, at least some of them are going to wind up, up having a bipolar problem from those stimulants. We need to be much more selective and careful. We shouldn't be experimenting with our kids by making medications so readily available. And what happened was that the drug companies ran out of adults. You know, 20% of adults are taking medication now every single day. That's an amazing number. Right. And the drug companies felt that in order to expand their market, they had to direct uh, doctors and parents and teachers to the great unmet need for more medication in kids. And also the idea was that if you get a kid early, you may have a customer for life. So I think that we, we've been doing in the last 20 years an uncontrolled, unsupervised, um, not monitored, not informed consent experiment on kids. And we need to restrict the medicine to those kids who really need it, not just be applying it. We, we wouldn't, no parent would, would take a kid who's playing high school football and encourage that kid to take steroids. You know, right. it just seemed like right. absurd for a parent to say, take steroids and you'll be a better player. We shouldn't be allowing our kids to be taking stimulant medication unless they really need it. Right, and you know, there are children that have severe learning disabilities that do have, you know, ADHD that do need this, um, the medications to be able to function in school and to learn overall. But I mean, I can tell you, I had a, a conversation with a parent not too long ago, and you know, I just was floored, and you know, I let her know it, and you know, basically her thought was, well, um, you know, if she takes the Adderall before she takes the test, she does so much better. So, you know, she had asked her doctor for Adderall. And, you know, I said, but that's crazy. And she says, well, if she does better on the test, then that means she needed it. You know, and it's like it's just, it's become so so casual, um, you know, among a lot of people. And, you know, like like we were just talking about, you know, I think that really the problem comes in with children with mental illness as far as the DSM and diagnosis because the bipolar um criteria just did not fit children. The adult criteria does not fit children. And they had to find some place to compartmentalize these kids, you know, and, and they probably are looking for a better diagnosis or a better label. Um, so as far as the changes and the additions, what are the changes and additions that you're finding to be most troublesome? Well, before we do that, let's just do the bipolar for a minute because I think that's of great concern as well. The rate of bipolar disorder in kids went up 40 times in the last 20 years. And the um, the reason for this isn't that there's more bipolar disorder in kids. It's just a matter of relabeling. Um, the, the notion that was um, successful in causing this increase is the idea that kids do present differently with uh, different symptoms because of their developmental differences from adults. And no one's really proven that. So that what happened was that all sorts of, of uh, temper tantrums, uh, oppositionalism, behavior problems that previously wouldn't have gotten the diagnosis of bipolar disorder were suddenly swept into an epidemic of, of I think, fake bipolar disorder. And the trouble with this is that the treatment for it was antipsychotic medication. Mm -hmm. And the tr trouble with that is that the antipsychotic medication, first of all, it's not proven to help in kids who don't have classic ups and downs. It's an unproven um, sort of experiment to be giving it. But we do know, we don't know whether it's beneficial, we do know how harmful it can be. If you take kids who average 110 pounds and you put them on an antipsychotic medication, within three months, they ballooned up to 122 pounds, and on Zyprexa to 128 pounds. So this is a real predictor. Putting someone on an antipsychotic, kid on an antipsychotic medication is a real predictor that they're going to become obese. 
and obese kids are much more likely to have diabetes, are much more likely to have heart disease down the road. If they stay on the medication, more likely to have a shortened lifespan. So we shouldn't be jumping the gun, increasing the diagnosis of childhood bipolar disorder by 40 times in just 20 years on an experimental notion that hasn't been adequately tested and it has been pushed so hard by drug companies. The um, Two years ago, the drug companies made $18 billion a year just on the antipsychotic medications. One of the biggest revenue producers. How could antipsychotic medications sell $18 billion worth of product? The only way is by giving it to people who don't need it. It might be horrified by it. So I'd be very cautious. Whenever a doctor says that a kid has childhood bipolar disorder, I'd be very cautious about that diagnosis. I wouldn't accept it. I would get second, third, fourth opinions. And I certainly wouldn't be medicating kids for childhood bipolar disorder because that's just unproven. Yeah. You know, but, you know, we both know there are some children that severely mentally ill, violent, um, aggressive, um, you know, they have no quality of life. Um, you know, and in those cases, I, I, I don't blame parents for trying medication because it's a quality of life issue. Um, I agree completely. Let me just say, yeah. I agree completely that there'll be situations where it's absolutely necessary right. to treat to treat symptomatically because there's nothing else working. But we shouldn't make believe that we understand that those situations are childhood bipolar disorder because it's not that. Right, I agree. And we, right. And we shouldn't make the assumption it's going to be a lifetime because it's not that. And I think it's just in, in those situations we're going off the grid. We don't have evidence about what works, and we're doing the very best we can to help the kid and help the parents and help the situation. But I think that the title, the name Childhood Bipolar Disorder, adds a kind of magical element that implies that this is going to go on for a life and that we understand what we're doing. And sometimes, again, that's like false certainty stuff that thinking we know what we're doing and we don't can lead to more harm than good. Yeah, and you know, in, in a more grayer area, not in a severe case, but, you know, that you could have a child or a teen that's, you know, rebelling or acting out, um, you know, and a diagnosis of mental illness, you know, in fact, could be a lack of coping skills. You know, um, Dr. Ross Green um, works with children beautifully with this. Um, that, you know, you really have to be a detective because not all kids acquire coping skills or life skills, um, you know, at a magical age. You know, by seventh grade, you should be able to handle, you know, this situation. Um, you know, there's always sensory issues that could cause rages. So, you know, there's so much work that parents need to do to uncover things because, um, you know, it, it, it takes a lot of time. But, you know, it brings me, I do want to go back to that question that I asked you about what's most uh, troublesome, and then I want to move on to the NIMH. But I really have one question that no one's given me an answer to, which is, where were these kids? I'm, I'm old. I'm 50. Where were these kids 40 years ago? I mean, I remember maybe having one or two kids that, you know, had a lot of problems, had a lot of difficulties. But, I mean, I don't remember this. So is it the parenting? Is it society? Is it what they're seeing on TV? What What is this? My feeling is that human nature doesn't change quickly. And um, it's interesting, actually, chimp nature, chimp nature doesn't change quickly. It turns out chimps are also, chimp babies and chimp youngsters are also difficult to rear. That being a squeaky wheel probably had evolutionary value. And chimp parents complain about their kids the way human parents complain about ours. That a child has never been an easy course. Um, it's always been fraught with difficulties. But it, previously, it wasn't all labeled as, as mental disorder. It was part of being a kid. Boys will be boys. Now it turns into attention deficit disorder. And I think that there's more stress sure. on, on, on labeling. I don't think the kids have changed very much, but there's more stress on labeling the kids as having mental disorder. And a lot of this is drug company propaganda. Some of this is because having a diagnosis became so important in school systems. And because school systems are stressed so much that they're not able to have the tolerance they once did. I think that we do a world of good having more physical education in schools. Right. If that was the and first thing to go in the budget crunch, crunches, and it would be, we'd have much less ADD if kids could run around the playground more during the day. Absolutely, we'll be able to uh, be different <laughs> and to find the marvel in their different instead of, you know, I think one of the contributing factors to this is. Um, 
you know, the school system, you know, we have the, you know, race to the top and we have schools getting funding for, um, you know, these advanced courses. And it really brings um, conformity where, you know, there's such high expectations on these kids. And if these kids don't conform and they don't fit into, you know, the norm academically or what the the school, you know, uh, is looking for, you know, it, it's like I'm automatically assumed that this kid has a problem. Um, so, you know, I think that education, yeah, you're right, I think that plays a role in it as well. There's a lot of pressure. Yeah, I think we have to accept the fact that not all individual difference implies mental disorder. Exactly. So there's, there's been this kind of rush to give a label to things and to assume that there is... Anderson completely the, the, the uh, positive value to labels. So... Previously, you or your kid has a problem. You don't understand it. It feels like you're all alone in the world and you're uniquely damned and what to do next. And all of a sudden, you get a diagnosis, and that gives a sense of security, and this is understood. They're not alone. We have a plan. We can move forward. So a diagnosis is accurate. That's a wonderful moment. I mean, it's yeah. been some of the most thrilling moments in my career has been to be with someone, sit, talk, get to know them, usually over many sessions, not the first session. I usually try not to diagnose right away. And then when we come, you know, this is how it looks to me, how it looked to you. We discuss it, negotiate it. If, if the glove sits, that's a great moment because it means we understand and we can move forward. The trouble is that coming to premature closure around the wrong label, which is what's happening all the time now after seven-minute appointments with doctors and stuff, right. if that gives this false sense of we know what we're doing, and that leads to more trouble. It'd be a lot better to accept the fact that kids will be different, that problems that seem absolutely impossible this week may look very different next week. Let's take some time, follow the natural course. Unless the problem is urgent, don't jump in right away. If it's urgent, certainly do it. Right. Unless and I it's just... urgent, again, I'm sorry. No, I was going to say, I just wanted to, um, you know, I wanted to save time for the, the last segment, but, you know, especially in the very young children, um, you know, that that's the most alarming in the really, really young children that um, diagnoses are, are jumped to. Um, you know, I wanted to move on to the, you know, let's go to, um, you know, what does NIMH, what, you know, how do they feel about the DSM-5? Because, you know, let's face it, they do a lot of research. Um, you know, so what does that mean for parents and for these kids? Well, there was an amazing announcement uh, just a few days ago from the director of NIMH in which he described a project research agenda that they've begun over the last several years, and he basically trashed DSM-5 and said that it wasn't valid, that up till this point, the DSMs have been the standard for doing research. If you want to get a grant here or really anywhere in the world, if you want to get published in a journal anywhere in the world, you have to have a DSM diagnosis. And what NIMH is doing is tacking away from that 180 degrees, and they're not interested in DSM diagnoses as research targets anymore. They're going to be focusing on simpler individual symptoms. Um, wow. This is okay. a, this is a good, a good idea. I think that mm -hmm. when we did DSM-3 33 years ago, we thought that by now we would have a much greater understanding of psychiatric illness than we do. It's been very disappointing that over this past extensive research effort that there isn't a single biological test in psychiatry, that um, a person practicing today practices just the same as people practiced 40 years ago, that the research has told us a tremendous amount about how the brain functions but it hasn't taught us anything about the individual psychiatric disorders. The reason for this is fascinating. The brain is the most complicated thing in the whole universe. It's a lot easier for Einstein to figure out relativity or for Darwin to figure out evolution than for anyone to figure out schizophrenia. Isaac Newton says, I can calculate the motion of the heavens but I can't calculate the madness of men. That psychiatric disorders are incredibly complicated. We don't understand breast cancer, and we've been studying it like crazy for the last 40 years. 
-hmm. Why should we expect to suddenly understand schizophrenia or autism? That each of these disorders is going to be very, very slow in revealing its secrets. There won't be one form of autism. There won't be one form of schizophrenia. There'll be hundreds. And it's going to take decades to work this out. The NIMH is embarking on a very useful research effort that will avoid the complexity of the current diagnoses and focus on much simpler questions. But what I'm afraid of is, when I started this four years ago, I was worried about the dangers of DSM-5. What I'm afraid of is not that people will get too discouraged about psychiatric diagnosis and too discouraged about psychiatric treatment, and that people who need it will think the whole thing's nonsense and, and not get the help they need. I think the NIH went too far in sort of saying, we're going on a new tack and not offering um, solace and comfort to people who have to live in the world that we now know. I think that the best attitude for psychiatry and for parents and for patients is we have good treatments and good diagnoses when we stick to what we know and we're cautious. A recent study shows that psychiatry does better than most medical specialties overall in its effectiveness. We know a lot that can be very helpful for people, but we shouldn't stretch our boundaries. We shouldn't do those gray areas where we don't really know that much. And we have to be very patient about the research because I don't think there'll be miracles. I think it's going to be retail, step-by-step. And the way I put it is that in, in psychiatric research, there won't be any grand slams. There won't be any walks. There'll be lots of valuable singles, and there will also be lots of disappointing strikeouts. And I think the best attitude a parent or a patient could have about psychiatry is, I'm going to learn a lot about it. I'm going to make sure I get the very best treatment I can. I'm going to be helped by this treatment because there's a lot that can be done for the problems that psychiatrists treat, and I, have, I continue to have faith in that. On the other hand, I'm not going to get involved in treatments that don't make sense, that don't fit me well. I'm going to press my own resilience in, in situations where I can really handle it. I'm not going to allow every problem in life to become a psychiatric disorder. And I think we can be very hopeful about psychiatry. We can be very hopeful about the treatments. But we shouldn't venture beyond our skills, and we shouldn't expect that the research is going to produce miracles in the short run. It just won't. And- Another um, two things I wanted to discuss before we we wrap up is that um, one of the chapters in the book is psychiatric diagnosis, a family affair. Um, And, you know, I think this this is a really important um, chapter in the book. And if you could just briefly, just in, you know, a few minutes, um, you know, just explain the the family's role. But, you know what, before you do that, I just want to say, and you and I discussed this before, that if your child is taking a medication and you're listening to this interview, and you know you're starting to you know doubt um, your choice. Do not stop a medication. Absolutely, do not stop a medication. Um, you know if you want to speak to your doctor. Um, you know this is informational, and um, you know this is in, by no means is trying to discourage anyone who may have their child on medication right now. But um, you know, let me just say to- that, Mary, Mary, let me just interrupt. You are a very wise woman. I think that we're going to make you a psychiatrist in the battlefield promotion. I think that the worst result that could come out of all of the uh, DSM-5 confusion, the NIMH announcement, is that people lose face in the treatments they're getting now and suddenly stop it and have a terrible outcome. Absolutely. My nightmare throughout this whole thing is that criticizing DSM-5 would lead to someone think that I was criticizing psychiatry, stop their medicine, kill themselves. It's very important, crucial, not to lose faith in the whole field because DSM-5 was silly. It's crucial never to make a decision quickly, either to start a medicine or to stop a medicine. That both of these are life-changing events. Lots of medicines have withdrawal symptoms when you try to stop them too abruptly. And the, the, the very best thing anyone can do is become completely informed, ask tons of questions, I can't repeat that enough, and get sensible answers. And if you don't get sensible answers, get another doctor see what he has to say. Get right. second, and third, fourth opinion. Right, and if your doctor gets annoyed because you don't want to try a medication or if a doctor gets annoyed because, you know, you're making choices that they don't recommend, 
um, you know, that's also a time, you know, because you know you know your child. I mean, most cases, parents know their children. Um, you know, and that, and that is key because, you know, just because there are some things about the DSM that you don't like, there are some things that bother me, does not mean these kids don't have mental illnesses anymore. Um, you know, it's just the, the grouping um, that I think we're, we're having an issue with. But um, talk a little bit about um, the family affair. Yeah, I think that um, there are a few exceptions, but overall, you need as much information in making a diagnosis as possible. And 95% or more of the time, it's best to have the family as involved as they can be and to get everyone putting their heads together, sharing experiences, um, learning the system. Everyone should be working off the same page and understanding what the diagnoses mean, um, understanding what the treatment's about, and that the, the whole effort will be enormously more successful the more the family's involved. The only two exceptions to this would be Sometimes with kids when they're individuating, like college kids and, and mm -hmm. young adults who need to be on their own, it may be better for them not to have the family involved so that they can you know, learn independence through the treatment. And if a family's in chaos, sometimes coming together around the diagnosis will be helpful in solving that chaos, but sometimes it can, it can be more troubling for the individual involved. So there may be times when you need to help the individual first, then maybe bring the family in when things have quieted down. But overall, the, the, the message is the more time and the more information that goes into the diagnosis, the better it will be and the more it will help over the lifetime of the patient and the family. The less information and the family's not involved, it's likely to be you know, quick shoot diagnoses that don't fit Family members are often amazed at the diagnosis. Someone goes in and gets diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Family members say, you're not bipolar. That's important information. A doctor who sees a patient for 15 minutes doesn't know the person as well as the family that lives with them. Right. And so the and, family know, is a very for, important part. You know, for parents, I think that when you know that there's something not right, um, it validates, um, especially for first-time parents, it validates that, you know, you were right, that, you know, something was wrong. And you feel that, okay, well, I have a diagnosis, that means I'm going to find an effective treatment, and we all hope you do. Um, but, you know, as many will tell you that that's not always so simple. Um, it's not so simple to get the right diagnosis, and it's certainly not simple to find the right, um, you know, medication. There's no magic pill. Um, so, you know, listen, I mean, parents are dealing with very difficult situations, very difficult children, children that really don't have a quality of life. And the, the psychiatric profession, you know, it, ch it changes lives. I mean, you help so many people. We're just asking you to have, you know, caution. Um, you know, if this book, Saving Normal and Insider's Revolt Against Out-of-Control Psychiatric Diagnosis, DSM-5, Big Pharma and the Medicalization of Ordinary Life, um, it's just fantastic. Um, can you tell us where people can get the book, where they can find you? As a matter of fact, you are on Twitter as Alan Francis MD. Everybody can give you a follow there. Um, you know, you're very approachable. Um, where can they get the book, and what is your website? I don't have a website. <laughs> I can't are use a computer. Are you kidding? No, oh, no, come no. On, I, I, don't, I don't know how to use a computer. I wrote the book on a BlackBerry. <laughs> yeah, I think you're a little <laughs> bit busy. <laughs> no, it's just I'm an uh, old guy without much technical skill. Uh, <laughs> you're I, doing I'm, pretty I'm, good. Yeah, I'm not good at promoting stuff. I, I think it's, I'm sure it's on Amazon. Uh, and you'll have no trouble finding Amazon. And I think that, uh, by and large, it's a pretty useful book. I think it's helpful in putting perspectives in, in a way that uh, will we'll, It's a very fair I book. Yeah, and, you know, I, I think it helps people trust themselves more. I think what I hear is that whenever I talk or whenever people read the book, it's really just common sense. But right. sometimes common sense is in short supply. Right. And, you know, we were talking about somatic disorder before, and, and one thing I just wanted to say was that, you know, if you feel that your child is having a problem, um, you know, we're not telling you you're crazy. Um, you know, what we're just saying is just be cautious, um, you know, that, that all kids go through something. And it, it's really, if you think about it, um, you know, Life isn't easy. Everybody has their ups and their downs. There are times everybody obsesses over something. There's, you know, some people that don't eat when they're upset. There are people that overeat when they're upset. It doesn't necessarily mean um, that it's a disorder. But, um, you know, the, when I think of different, I think of brilliance because I'm meeting so many people doing this. And, um, you know, we need to diagnose, we need to treat, we need to offer support, you know, especially for those in need. But we need to embrace and foster differences in people, and I think that's where yeah. society is losing. Yeah. You know, we shouldn't be eliminating differences. We should really be embracing them. Yeah, that's true. 
there's a whole movement I got involved with that I think is very, very important, and that's very ignored, gifted kids. Oh, we, we that's of one as, of our main things on this show. We have Bright Not Broken, yeah. Temple Grandin, Diane Kennedy. Yeah, I think it's, that that's, it's very important to realize that gifted kids are often misdiagnosed as having mental disorder. That's what the show's it, about. Yeah. yeah, okay, I don't have to tell and you people, mis, people misinterpret. They think that gifted means genius. And that's where I think a lot of confusion comes in. Um, you know, they, they're, they're twice gifted. They have their deficits and their positives. But I can't thank you enough for coming. And I'd actually hope that, you know, I know you're going away maybe when you come back because there are so many things um, that adults need to know about themselves. Um, you know, we've been focusing on the kids, but I'd like to focus a bit on, um, you know, some of these issues that are going to affect the parents. You know what? You're the best interviewer, so anytime, <laughs> oh, anyplace, I'm always available. Okay, well, have a great vacation. Thank you again for joining us, and, you know, thank you, because you're, you're going to help a lot of people. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, have a great night. As I end each show, you are your child's best advocate. If not you, then who? Become an informed, educated parent with us here at The Coffee Clatch. You can find us at www.thecoffeeclatch.com. And again, thank you to our sponsors. Have a great night, everyone. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.